That is indeed the message of the day. Amen. Chris, thank you. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, it's our desire today to behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you for the message and song. We thank you for the reminder and the remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we open the pages of your word today, may we be mindful of what he has paid that we might live and experience true life. Father, we pray for your blessing today. We need your help. And Lord, I pray this weekend, as no other time before, we'll understand what Jesus Christ has done. We love you. We need you. We appeal to your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. It's true, he died. It's true that the Son of God gave all that he had for, the, for you and me. It is true that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other, no other way whereby we may find life. And yet, do you know that more men will leave the ministry this year than any other time in the history of our country? More men will leave the ministry this year than who will enter it. There's staggering reality in the world of Jesus Christ today, and that is this, that Christians who confess to know God, who proclaim to believe that he alone is the way to eternal life, are leaving the ranks of those who serve him. I don't know how it strikes you to consider the fact that more individuals today who proclaim to be called of God to share the gospel of Christ are now leaving that divine calling. It is also true that the back door of most churches is now bigger than the one at the front. More churches are losing members this year than are gaining them. Less people will serve in the church this year than there were last year. And if the song be true and the Lamb came, why is that so? Is it the blight of a sexually immoral society that has captured and gravitated our attention? Is it because we live in a materialistic world which promises fulfillment through things and we tend to compromise and pursue those things? Is it the magnet of our world that has caused us to betray our heart longing, our confession of truth? I want to argue today, I want to suggest today that the issue at hand for us the issue at hand for men of God who would fill the pulpits of America, the issue for you and me, is not an issue of temptation or the intensity thereof. It's not really the world and its magnetic attraction. It's not really sexual temptation and the lure thereof. You know what it is? It is a lack of driving, burning spiritual energy which enables us to pursue God and share God. You know what's wrong in the church today? Burnout. You see, we talked Monday and Wednesday of what it takes to really know God, to partake of His nature. And we saw seven ingredients that we had to work very hard, yea, unto the point of great pain, to add to our life. But the truth is, very few of us will really get down and do that, though inspired today we may be. And the reason is, is because we don't know how. 
to get a hold of the driving energy of the Spirit of God, which enables us to keep on going when everything in us wants to stop. I've been a pastor now for a year and a half. The truth is that without the instrument that we will speak of today, I would quit. Some days I feel like a barrel with a 12-inch outlet pipe and a 2-inch inlet pipe. I've got a flow disparity. I've got more going out than that which comes in. Webster says burnout is the place where the missile gets to where it doesn't have any more fuel. And some days that's true of my life. When I first got to Alabama, I met a good friend, a minister of music at a large church in Birmingham. We used to play basketball together, golf some. We had a great time. It wasn't five months into our relationship that I found out that he had violated his integrity as a man of God. He'd gotten involved with some women in his church, and he had given away his calling. And I was shocked and broken to hear it, and I can remember the day that I drove to his home. And I said to him, what happened? What happened to you? You sang of His grace. You spoke. You ministered from the platform week after week. Forrest, what happened to you? And he said this. He said, Harry, I burned out. He said, I got tired. Man, I was giving more than I had. And I was empty. And I was vulnerable. And I didn't have spiritual drive to do the things necessary to walk with God. And I fell. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 63. Because it is my belief that you're not very much different than I am or he was. If the truth be known, you struggle with spiritual burnout too. And for all the truth that we learned on Monday and Wednesday, it is my assumption that unless you know how to infuse God's energy into your life, you'll never work hard to add those critical ingredients to your spiritual life. You have got to learn what it takes to enjoy the spiritual energy of God in your life. And there is a way. I want to talk this morning on spiritual vitality, the key to combating burnout, to tasting of the energy of the living God. Psalm 63 speaks of a man who is in some serious trouble. If there was ever a man who needed refreshing, it was David in Psalm 63. David is writing from the wilderness of Judah. David has been driven out of his palace by Absalom, his son. 2 Samuel 15 says, Absalom used to stand at the gate, and when the men of northern, the northern kingdom would come down to visit his father David... Absalom would talk to them of justice and their needs. And the Bible says he stole the hearts of Israel. And then went on to lead a conspiracy and unite those tribesmen of the northern kingdom to come down and to usurp his father's place of authority. And David, knowing the reality of the situation, fled to Judah. And we find him in the wilderness, in a dry and weary land, verse 1, where there is no water. But notice what else. Not only is he in a wilderness outside, but notice what he says in verse 1. O oh God, thou art my God. I shall seek thee earnestly or early. Why? Because my soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee. 
Do you know what we know about David in Psalm 63? Not only is life bad on the outside, David said, inside, my soul is parched, it's thirsty, it's dry. God, I need something, I need you. I'm in the wilderness. Have you ever been in the wilderness spiritually? You didn't want to go to church. You didn't want to read the Bible. You don't want to share Christ. You don't want to live holy. You don't care. You don't have any energy. You don't have any drive. Have you ever felt that way? Not a lack of data, a lack of desire. Not a lack of knowledge, but a lack of drive. David felt that way. But notice verse 5. Something happened. David said, My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. David said, My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness. Now, marrow and fatness in the Hebrew terminology, it's a Hebrew idiom. It means, as with the richest of food. David said, My soul is satisfied as if I have eaten the best soul food in town. I mean, the steak and lobster tail of what it takes to nourish my innards, I've partaken of. Furthermore, verse 5 says, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. I have a question for you. What happened to this guy? Verse 1, he's in the wilderness. Verse 1 says he's aching with a dry and thirsty soul. Now in verse 5, he says, I have been satisfied as with the richest of food. David, what in the world happened to you? What is the cause for this radical transformation of life and soul? Look at verse 6. The how is revealed by the when. Look what David says. When I remember thee on my bed, when I meditate on thee in the night watches. The clue to David's renewal is found in verse 6, and it was when he remembered God, when he meditated on Him. The most enriching spiritual discipline in my life is the discipline of meditation. Without that discipline in my spiritual experience, there is no question in my mind that I would not do what I do. Because there's not enough in me to do it. I do not believe that you will do what you need to do without finding the means whereby you can gain what David gained, which is satisfaction of soul, richness of spirit, by means of the divine fountain of meditation. Turn with me to Psalm 1. David said in Psalm 63, his life was changed by virtue of the practice of meditation. He said it's the key to spiritual vitality. I went from a thirsty man to a satisfied man. Psalm 1 talks of the righteous man and the practice that distinguishes him from the ungodly. Verse 2 says his delight, his practice, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 says that the consistent practice of meditation is the key which distinguishes and dominates the life of a righteous man. Psalm 1 says it determines his peers. Look at verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
the ungodly man frequents those who would cause him to go astray, the scoffer, the sinner, the wicked ones. But the godly man, the righteous man, whose practice it is to meditate, does not find refreshing fellowship with the ungodly, but rather with the Word of God and the people of God. But notice verse 3, because this is where we want to focus this morning. Let's look at four characteristics or four products of the life of a man or a woman who meditates. Verse 3, he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. What will happen to you if you meditate? What will happen to you if you dwell upon the Word of God and the things of God? Number one, you'll be a stable person. Notice the Scripture says you will be like a tree. Not like a bird, not like a plane, not like a, a cloud, not like a star, but like a tree. Why? Because trees are stable. They don't move. The, the wicked are not so, verse 4 says. The wicked are like chaff which the wind drives away. The godly man who meditates is like a tree who's stable. He defies the wind. The ungodly are like the chaff, the waste of the grain. Do you remember how that worked? They would toss the grain in the air. The chaff would get blown away and the grain would fall in a pile. The Bible says the wicked are like the grain that's driven away. But the godly are like trees. As a matter of fact, like trees firmly planted. I told you Wednesday of the tornadoes that went through central Alabama that tore through our state. I've never seen or heard anything like that. It was about three in the morning and the winds began to blow and the skies looked like someone was shooting fireworks just constantly, one flash after another, and I couldn't even hear thunder because the wind was so loud. It sounded like a train and it was just roaring and, and it was growing by the minute. And I promise, it was a scary, scary time. And you could hear trees go down with a great crash, as you, even as you heard that wind blow. And I remember going out to the house site where we're building, and there were 20-some trees down. And do you know that with, almost without exception, all the trees that went down were pine trees? Some of them big pine trees. I'm a pine tree lover. I like pines. They're beautiful trees. But you know what? They don't do well in a strong wind. Do you know why? They have surface roots. They're surface feeders. They don't have long, deep tap roots. And when the winds of life come, when the storms of life come, they go down. This wind was so strong, it took a set of French doors in the back of the house and blew them right out. Didn't open them, blew them out of the frame. But do you know what? There were some other trees that stood right by the house, right by the pine trees. They were oak trees. They were hickory trees. They were trees with roots. You know what happens when we meditate? We put down some spiritual roots. Does it ever bother you the way people vacillate in their Christian experience? Does it bother you when you see Christians who say one thing, do another? Does it bother you when you look in the mirror and look at the Christian who most of all fails to do what they say they'll do. Do you know the key to stability is meditation according to verse 2? You will be like a tree. Furthermore, you'll be not only stable, 
but vital. Notice what else it says. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, streams of water is just meant to imply that you'll always have constant nourishment. Trees planted by streams of water always have access to the nourishing life that they need. When I lived in California, I lived over near Saugus High School. And I had this big patch of backyard, about 15 by 25. And in that backyard, I had worked for Hal Kemper for two days. He's the gentleman that used to work so hard on these grounds here. And I worked for him for a couple of days, and he came over to my house and helped me dig up part of my backyard to put in a flower bed. And we worked really hard for, for two days, and he planted all kinds of petunias. And I was out by, by the uh, nursery, and I saw some pansies, and I like pansies. You know, they had the purple with the black center, and they were gorgeous, and I liked them, so I took five of them home and planted them in the A1 position in my new little flower bed. Every morning I got up and I turned on the sprinkler and I watered all the grass and all of the flowers, giving special attention to the pansies. Do you know that after two weeks of the blazing Southern California sun, in spite of my efforts, those pansies were starting to wilt and wither? Do you know that I decided, well, maybe it wasn't enough this morning watering system, so let's add the evening too. So I would water in the morning, I would come to school here, later in the evening I would water again. Do you know what? Didn't change much of anything at all. Flowers continued to wither, continued to die. As a matter of fact, one month after I planted my beautiful pansies, out of the five pansies, four were dead, burned dry. You say, Mr. Green Thumb, how do you explain this? <laughs> well, I want to say that there was one pansy still alive. He was gorgeous. Maybe it was a she. She was gorgeous. Do you know which one stayed alive? The one by the sprinkler head which leaked. <laughs> you see, my sprinkler head, I, it didn't go all the way off, so it dribbled all day long. And that little pansy sucked up that nourishing life, and in spite of the blazing sun which reflected off of that wall in my backyard, he lived. You know why? Constant nourishment. You know what the Bible says about the individual who will meditate? They'll be like a tree, deeply rooted, planted by rivers or streams of water. And notice what verse 3 says, and its leaf does not wither. You want to know the key to staying alive spiritually, to fighting burnout? It's meditation. It's the discipline of meditation. Furthermore, not only will he be alive or vital, but he'll also be fruitful. Notice what verse 3 says. He'll yield its fruit in its season. You know what science tells us? Plants never bear fruit unless they have an excess of life or water or nourishment. You don't ever find a plant bearing fruit when it's dying. Plants bear fruit when they have more life than they need to survive. You know what this is saying? A person who meditates not only has enough life to keep alive, not only has enough life to have leaves that don't wither, it has enough life to bear fruit, an abundance of life. Does that describe your life? Do you have enough energy, spiritual desire in your life to pursue God, to work really hard like we talked about Monday and Wednesday? You won't unless you are a meditator on the things of God. And then number four, 
The fourth characteristic of the person who meditates, verse 3 says, and whatever he does, he prospers, he's successful. The word prosper is a Hebrew word which means to accomplish the aim, to secure what is intended. The Aramaic root means to press through, to get it done. The person who meditates, the person who draws from the riches and resources of God, knows how to do what they want to do, and they know precisely what God desires them to do. If you want to refuel, if you want to stay alive, if you want to be like a tree which constantly bears fruit and its leaf doesn't wither, if you want to have a successful spiritual experience, then you must begin to meditate. It is the key to spiritual vitality. You say, Harry, now what is meditation? I mean, we live in a world of yoga, new age. What is meditation? Is it sitting in a funny position, clearing the mind to allow whatever to come in? What is biblical meditation? Biblical meditation, number one. Let's talk about what the Hebrew word meditate means. The Hebrew word meditate means to reflect or to ponder. It means to think about. It means to have extended thought. It means to contemplate deeply. It's like solo brainstorming. You know, you pick out the, the object and you focus your attention upon it. Furthermore, the other Hebrew concept means to utter or to speak. It is also translated meditate. I don't know about you, but that confuses me. I'm not altogether certain how uttering and speaking facilitates thinking. But have you ever played a game like chess or even checkers? And in your mind, you talk to yourself and you say, now, if I do this, then they'll do this. And you literally talk to yourself to facilitate your thought. Meditation involves extended thought that is sometimes facilitated by thinking. And meditation, biblically, is always upon some focus. Unlike yoga and transcendental meditation, where you clear the mind, biblical meditation involves the filling and the focusing of the mind. You put things of God on your mind. You say, what things? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 63, 6, that David meditated on God in the night watches. Fundamental to, to staying true and vital in your Christian experience is a focus on the person of God. His attributes, His glory, His person, it's refreshing, David says. My mind anticipated the night watches that I might meditate on Thee, O God. What else does the Christian meditate upon? The works of God. Psalm 77, verse 11 says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord, surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate on all thy work and muse on all thy deeds. Psalm 77, 11 and 12. Not only the person of God, but the works of God. Furthermore, the Bible says that meditation is to be upon the words of God. Joshua 1, 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night. Then thou shalt be prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. Psalm 1, verse 2, the delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1, 19, 15, David said, I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. 
Psalm 119.23, Thy servant meditates on thy statutes. Psalm 119.48, I will meditate on thy statutes and I will meditate, Psalm 119.78, on thy precepts. Psalm 119.99, I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy word is my meditation. If you want to be spiritually vital, you have got to develop the art of thinking upon the word, the works, and the person of God. Now, beloved, there is no secret to what it takes to walk with God. You know what to do. The question is, do you have the energy from which to do it? If you will know the rich bounty and resources of spiritual life such that you can be the man or woman of God He's designed you to be, you must partake of Him by meditating upon Him and His Word and His work. There's a graphic synonym that kind of helps us understand what meditation is. It's the word ruminate. There are a group of animals in our world which are called ruminants. They have four chambers in their stomach. The first chamber is called the rumen. Cows are ruminants. Have you ever watched a cow eat? It's awesome. They just munch and swallow. They don't chew anything. Munch and swallow, munch and swallow, munch and swallow. That's all they do until later in the day when you know what they do. That's right. They cough it up and they chew it. They chew their cud. You say, oof, it's almost lunchtime and you're ruining. The fact is, that is a graphic example that is a synonym of the word and the concept of meditate. What a cow does in the physical realm, you and I are to do in the spiritual or mental realm. We are to take raw data from God's word. And we're to to cough it up, as it were, and mentally chew on it. Have you ever had a tough decision to make and somebody says to you, Hey, do you want to do this? And you say, I don't know. Let me, let me think about it. Let me chew on it. You know what you're saying? Let me meditate. Let me think about it. Let me, let me turn it over in my mind. Let me see if it's a good thing for me to do. Let's see if it's a positive step for me to take. And if you want to know what it takes to be spiritually vital and alive in your Christian experience, you've got to learn to think and extend your reflection upon the person, the works, and the Word of God. You say, how in the world do I do that? On this Friday, there's nothing more than I would, nothing more in the world than I would like is for you to understand a way that you can do this. But because it is my belief that no other practice in the Word of God promises what meditation does in terms of spiritual benefit. I've been to seminary, I've read lots of books. I know of rarely a one which, which explains a process whereby we can know how to interact with God's Word such that we receive the richness that He promises via meditation. I've seen parts of pages dedicated to the topic, but I've never been trained nor taught in the art of meditating. And yet, if you will study church history, you will find that with almost without exception, the men and the women that God used greatly knew much about what it meant to meditate upon Him. How do you do that? Well, turn, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 6. 
And I want to give you a method this morning in closing. I want to give you a means whereby you can practice the art of meditation. Because I really want you to partake of God's nature. And I really want you to work hard in your Christian life. But I also know that you're not probably much different than I am. And that is, that unless you have a means of spiritual energy renewing your life and your soul, you won't work hard to do anything. Because you won't care. You won't have the drive, the energy, or the desire. There are seven steps that I have found profitable in the art of meditation. The method I offer you is a method, not the method. You're welcome to modify any way you like. I want to give you four thoughts, though, before we begin. Number one, meditation is to be done deliberately. You don't just happen into meditation. You do it on purpose. Furthermore, it's to be done in a quiet place. You know, educators tell us that the best time your mind works is when the environment is quiet. They say even music is detrimental to the thinking process. Now, when I study, I like music on. But most folks are not so. And as a matter of fact, scientists say it is not so. You will think better if the environment is quiet. Number one, it needs to be deliberate. Number two, it needs to be in a quiet place. Number three, it is hard. Meditation is thinking. That's hard. Most of us don't think real well. Or real often. Most of us find that a lot of work. That's why we don't like to study. That's why we don't read as much as we watch TV. TV requires no work. Thinking does. Reading does. Meditation is hard. It requires effort and work. Number four, meditation is to be developed into a habit. And it takes 21 days, they tell us, to develop a habit. So four random thoughts before we begin. Let it be deliberate. Let it be in a quiet place. Let it be as a consequence of hard work. And let it be consistent enough where it becomes a habit in your life. What do you need to do? Number one, step one, seven stepping stones to spiritual vitality. Number one, I call it preparation. Preparation. It is to prepare your mind for meditation by dwelling upon the Word of God before you go to sleep. David said, my, my mind and my soul anticipates the night watches that I can meditate on thee. David said in Psalm 16:7, he said, my mind instructs me in the night. And then in our passage, Proverbs chapter 6, we find this statement. Beginning in verse 20, My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. Now watch verse 22. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. What are the commandments of the father and mother? They are simply the law of God. Deuteronomy 6 says that the fathers and mothers were to constantly teach their children about the law of God. Proverbs 6.20 says that the son is to observe the commandment of the father, the law of God, to not forsake the teaching of the, the mother. Have them continually in front of you, such that, now look at verse 22, what happens when you walk, they guide you. 
When you sleep, they watch over you or they keep you or they protect you. And then verse 22 says, and when you awake, they will talk to you. Herbert Benson, a professor at Harvard's medical school, says this. The last conscious thought that you have on your mind when you fall asleep will be handed to your subconscious, and it's upon that that your mind will dwell all night long. The last conscious thought stays with you. That's why it's good to study before you go to bed if you have a big test the next day, because your mind will begin to work on that material even though you sleep. You say, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> that's true. That's why when you watch a scary movie, you, you dream things you would never dream. You're running from this abhorrent creature of the deep... You, you're scared. You sometimes wake up more tired than when you went to sleep. Why? Because your mind is working on a problem, working on an issue. Because you handed to your subconscious something that was not helpful, but hurtful. Jim Downing, a member of the Navigators, has written a book on meditation, and he says this. Dawson Trotman, the founder of Navigators, used to have this practice. Before he would go to sleep, he would say goodnight to his wife, kiss her goodnight, and then open God's Word and read through it until he found a verse of Scripture that appealed to his heart and his soul. He said, I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that He knows what tomorrow holds. I therefore petition Him that He might show me truth from His Word, which will energize me to live His will the next day. And as I peruse through the pages of Scripture, I will look for a verse that He has touched and calls my attention to, and I dwell upon that until my eyes close in sleep. For it is then when I awaken that I have nurtured upon Him. I want to encourage you to develop a practice before you go to bed. Be careful what you put on your mind. Take God's Word and reflect upon it. Put it away such that when you awake, the words of God will talk to you. You know, it's been my practice when I have fulfilled this responsibility to get out of bed in the morning, go to the shower, and literally have that verse first on my mind. And sometimes even have truths or principles derived from those thoughts that I did not even know I had understood. I want to encourage you to begin your meditation before you sleep. David said, Psalm 16, 7, My mind instructs me in the night. Step two. Step two involves the concept of memorization. Do you believe with me that all the words of God's Bible are inspired? Every single one? If that's true, then are they all not important? Then we ought to take a step to the storing word perfect of our meditation we've begun the night before. Memorize it. Get up in the morning, and what I do is I put it on a 3 by 5 card. I'll write it out, set it on the mirror by the, by the sink, get in the shower, reflect on that verse, and come out, and there it is. And if I don't know it word perfect, by the time I leave for work, I do. The desire is to store it. Why? So that I can cough it up during the day and reflect upon it. Because the Bible teaches that day and night His delight is in the law of the Lord, and it's all day long that the reflection upon God's Word is to occur. You remember the pansy? It wasn't because it was watered twice a day, but because it had nourishment all day. 
Memorize it. Step three. Step three is called implication. Implication. All the words of God's Word are not only inspired, but they have meaning and definition. Step three is to take and cite the key words, circle them in the verse you're meditating upon, and then define them. And then ask yourself this. If this word means this, then what's the implication? What else is true? Psalm 25, 15 says that my eyes are continuously on the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. What does the word net mean? It means a trap. It means a snare. It's something that hunters put out for prey. What's the implication? If I should happen to step into a trap, a snare, something which someone else has laid, not a work of my own doing, but something someone else has done, what will God do? He'll watch me jump my way out. He'll watch me tear my way out. That's not what the verse says. It says when you come into a problem, a net, God will pluck you out, snatch you out. David said, my eyes are continuously on the Lord, for He will pluck me out of the net. You know what that means? Implication. That I don't have to worry in my life about stepping into the snares of another. I don't have to be paranoid about the way the others may treat me. When I step into a situation not of my own making, what does God say? If my eyes are continuously on Him, He will pluck me out. You understand how implication works? You define the terms and then you ask yourself a question. If this word means this, then what else is true? Step four. Step four is personalization. The Bible is written for you. It's written for me. I generally get mail on a daily basis which says to the staff of Shades Mountain Independent Church. Do you know how many of those I have? None. You see, the to whom it may concern stuff doesn't exactly ring my bell. Oh, I record the information, but do I keep those? No, they're not written personally to me. Can you imagine getting a letter from the girl or the guy that you love and they say, to whom it may concern? Do you think you'd save those? Do you know sometimes we read God's Word as if it's to whom it may concern? That it's generic? It's not generic. It's written to you. And one of the most helpful things you can do in the meditating upon God's Word is to put your name in the verse. Harry's eyes are continuously on the Lord. And if they are, he will pluck Harry out of the net. At lunchtime, I like to pray my meditation verse. And rather than, Father, thank you for this food. May it be a nourishment to my body. Amen. I have chosen to reflect with God upon the truth that He is teaching me that day. Father, thank You for the fact that if I will keep my eyes on You, though trouble may come, You will pluck me out of it. And for this I have confidence, and for this I am thankful. 
This food is a reflection of your grace and provision. I trust you to do what you've promised me to do. You would do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you imagine how much richness will be added to your life if you will begin to embrace the truth of God's Word as if He wrote it for you? To whom it may concern does not apply to the facts of God and the Word of God. He has written it for you. Step five is imagination or visualization. And that is simply this. Jerry Lucas, the author of a book called The Memory Book, he was the former center for the New York Knicks, he's memorized the Manhattan phone book, astounding feat. He has also memorized the entire Word of God. He's written a book which helps us, is meant to help you and I memorize better. And one of the staggering principles he points out is this. The key to memory is association. The key to memory is to visualize the truth that you are trying to embrace. He says if you want to remember God's Word, visualize its truth enacted. For instance, it says that God will pluck your feet out of the net. Therefore, in your mind, you're to visualize the reality of that. Imagine somebody laying a snare for you. You step in. They're about to close the trap, and God snaps you out. Can you see that in your mind? That's the key. I was reading last week in preparation for the Easter season about the consequences of the cross. Do you realize that the cross was a just payment for your sin and mine? Do you realize how much God must hate sin if the cross was a fair deal? If that's what it took to pay your sin and mine? Do you realize how much God must hate sin if hell is just punishment for it? You see, hell is a bad deal. An eternity of suffering and agony. There, the Bible says, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's fair. How can that be fair? Only if the crime is of such heinous nature that God would call hell fair. See, God must hate sin if the cross is just payment and if hell is just punishment. And I was thinking about the other day, that the other day when I was reading Matthew 13:42, and my meditation was, there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I tried to imagine that. That's hard to do. Unless you've really hurt and ached from your soul, that's hard to imagine. Last fall, a family in our church had an 18-month-old little boy playing at home who fell over an ottoman, a stool, down five stairs, landed at the bottom. His mother scrambled down the stair, picked him up, and he died in her arms. Healthy little boy. And I was at the hospital with them while he was on the respirator. He died, but when the medics got there, they revived and they took him to the hospital. He hadn't gained conscious. His little body just laid on this table. And I went in with the mother and with the father, and we looked at that little face, and it was as if he were asleep. And I'll never forget the groan that came out of that woman's heart and voice. I mean, you couldn't believe the hurt, the agony, the sound that was coming forth from her, the pain 
There's nothing you can say. There's no answers you can give. You're just there to share in the depth of the hurt. Do you know what? That is only an inkling of the agony of the voices that will sound in hell as a consequence of eternal torment. And beloved, if you get that in your mind, you will not forget the principles of the verses and the words which you are meditating upon. If you can hear the sound and you can recreate the imagery in your mind as to how it may be. I was in Florida last week and a man brought me an article out of a recent Christian publication. I don't know if it's true, but they said there's a geological team that was been to Siberia not too long ago and they drilled into the earth. And at nine miles down, the drill bit began to spin wildly. And they put audio cords down this hole in an effort to hear the shifting of the earth's plates. They were a geological team. They were studying the movement of the earth and its crust. And when they dropped the cords down, the audio cords, as the article said, they heard some weird things and they tuned their instruments and they began to hear some things which scared them out of their mind. And the the article records this. They heard the sound of voices screaming in great agony. They closed the hole and they have never returned. Now, I don't know whether hell is really in the center of the earth. Some theologians think so. I also don't know that spirits condemned to hell can talk or speak or sound. I know someday they will be fitted for that purpose. I don't really know today how it works, but I know this. Hell is a reality in which there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And when I hear that mother's cry and I I carry that into the vivid reality of what hell may be, then my mind embraces truth that I do not forget. That was my meditation on Friday of last week. On Saturday, I got to do step six, which is application. See, Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night. Why? That you may observe to do all that is written therein. You know what meditation is not? It is not meant to wow your buddies and pals with theological insight. It is not to increase or grow you in knowledge. You know what it's meant to do? Modify your behavior. I got on an airplane Saturday morning last week heading to Southern California to be with you. And I looked forward to this all month long. I was excited about coming back home in some ways. And as I got on the plane, it was like 7 in the morning. I'd been up at 4.30. I'd packed. I'd been up late the night before and I got on. And my buddy who works at American Airlines had me in first class. And this arrogant noisy, belligerent person sat next to me. And I thought, oh, no, Lord, I don't want to ride with him. I mean, I'm on the plane. It was a direct flight, although we landed in Dallas and we stayed on the same plane. Nothing changed. He was going there to Burbank with me. And he was obnoxious. He was obnoxious to everybody. But I had meditated on Friday on about the wailing and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know what the application from that was? And this is what you need to ask yourself. If this verse is true, then what must I do? If it's true that there is a hell, and if it's true that people go there, if it's true that there's great agony there, then what is demanded of me? I've got to share with this guy something about eternity, right? I can't ride all the way to Burbank and believe what I say I believe and not say anything to him even though he's belligerent and and arrogant and uncomfortable to be with. 
Well, it took me about 45 minutes to decide how I was going to enter into this conversation, and you won't believe it. But as it turned out, he liked a whole lot of the things I liked. He collected antique cars. He travels frequently to the south, so he knew a lot of the things that I knew about. He liked to travel in places that I had already been or I was going. And we got a, quite a conversation. And do you know what? That man had never in all of his life heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never, not one time. You know where he lives? Canyon country. That's true. Do you know what? If I really believe what I was meditating on, I've got to share the gospel with him, and so do you. Because there are people out there that don't know anything about God or Jesus Christ or the cross or what Easter's all about. That's how I said, do you, what's Easter mean to you? What are you going to do on Easter? Well, I plan to fly out to another meeting at a tire and rubber company in Memphis. I said, on Easter? He said, so what? What is Easter anyway? He lives in Canyon Country. He's been here 18 years. He was here when none of this was here in terms of the growth and development. Beloved, the Bible says dwell upon the things of God in an effort to apply those things to your life. And then lastly, starvation. That's right. You know, there's 100,000 distractions in our life that will keep us from focusing on the things of God. TV, radio, relationships, magazines, books. Athletic events, activity. You want to dwell upon the things of God, you're going to have to starve a little bit in some of those areas. You're going to have to shut some things off. I took all the tapes out of my car, my cassette tapes. You say, why in the world would you do that? Because it's too easy for me to slide a tape in on the way to work. Because what I need to do is think about God. And maybe there's some things you've got to change in your world and life, and maybe you have to cancel a subscription, or maybe you have to change some behavior. But the Bible teaches that if you'll meditate and you dwell on the things of God, you will be enriched and you will grow. If you want spiritual energy, you practice those seven things. It will not only change your life, it will infuse you with energy and life and dynamic that you've never known. The water of God is sweet. It's pure, it's enough. But you have to know how to get it. And meditation is the biblical vehicle God has provided whereby you and I can gain the grace and the energy necessary to do what we're supposed to do. Isaiah 55 says this, Ho, everyone who thirsteth, come ye to the waters and drink. It's free. It's available to you and me. Father, we thank you.